Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. This is episode 13, That's a Lot of V's. Now, if you thought any of the other wartime alliterations that we've talked about on the show were bad, this one really takes the cake. V for vitamins, vitality, vigor, vim, and victory. (laughs) So today we are talking about nutrition in wartime America. We have a lot to talk about, so we are going to just dive right in. Now, we've talked a little bit about nutrition already and how America was not as healthy as you might think. Now, this did not escape the notice of the government or President Roosevelt. So World War II saw the start of the National Nutrition Program. But how did this all come about? The first, one of the first resources I thought of when I... I was preparing for this episode was an exhibit book from the National Archives exhibit entitled What's Cooking Now, Uncle Sam? And the exhibit was about how the government affected the diets of America through our history. And in the book, it says in the 1930s, some nutrition scientists believed they had evidence that one third of Americans were malnourished. As part of the war effort in the 1940s, the Federal Security Agency was tasked with addressing vitamin starvation. Their solution? Recommended daily allowances, flour enrichment programs, and a government seal to identify nutritious foods. They hired prominent social scientists to apply their insights into culture and human behavior to the campaigns to change eating habits. What were the effects of these programs? Small potatoes. Until rationing forced them to change, Americans continued to eat much as they always had. This quote really brings out that our whole understanding of nutrition and the nutrition programs that we have in our country today really were started around this time. The 1930s is when they really started paying attention that, hey, America produces a lot of food, but its people are really undernourished. I also like that they point out the recommended daily allowances and the flour enrichment programs. And we can add to that the enriched margarine that they made. And a lot of, in a lot of ads from that time, you'll see that they're fortified or enriched. And that's really where all that began. So even before we entered World War II, in 1941, the government and President Roosevelt, you know, were looking at these nutritional problems in the country. And what we learned from quite a few resources, I was reading in some newspapers, that over 40% of our young men called up for the draft were rejected for physical defects. An overwhelming number of these were caused direct or indirectly by malnutrition. And during this time, they were also studying what the Germans had been doing during the 1930s. They had learned that a lot of their population was undernourished and also the men were failing the draft. So they started giving their soldiers three square meals a day. They also looked at Britain too, And how they had been waking up to the reality of poor nutrition among their population. And in one newspaper, with the heading, Only One American in Four is Properly Fed, they relay this story. A striking incident in Britain's RAF serves to bring home the importance of foods. One gunner in the RAF had an extraordinary record of nailing Nazi aircraft in the dark. His mates, who called him carrots because he was constantly munching carrots, didn't know much about vitamin A, but... They saw the results. They also had conducted this study that they took these undernourished men who failed the draft and gave them solid meals every day, like well-rounded, nutritious meals. And after just a matter of weeks, they went to re-enlist or re-take their 
health examination again and they passed. And so this was evidence that, you know, this was a problem they could solve and they just needed to spread the word to the American people that this problem could be fixed. At the request of President Roosevelt, on May 26th through the 28th, more than 500 of the country's experts on nutrition and the economic aspects of food production and distribution met for a national nutrition conference on defense. One newspaper said, The aim of the conference, called by President Roosevelt, is similar to that of the First World War when former President Herbert Hoover organized the first nationwide effort to produce more food and to conserve every ounce possible. The principal objective of the conference is to work out methods of seeing that the diets of 30 million families are adequate in both quantity and food value. At present, the Surgeon General declared almost 10 million families are not receiving proper living diets. So for three days, all of these experts got together and what they formulated as a way to fix this nutrition problem in America was the National Nutrition Program. And this program consisted of a a lot of parts, and it involved a lot of propaganda, a lot of advertisement. But the National Nutrition Program itself had several objectives. And depending on which source you look at, they explain the purpose of the program in different ways. In a Pennsylvania newspaper in 1942, it declared... The aim and scope of the National Nutrition Program is to reach every man, woman, and child in the country with information concerning the newer knowledge of nutrition, to provide means of making education effective, to encourage families to market wisely for nourishment as well as economy, to discourage waste, and to combat possible rising prices and shortages by learning how to get nourishment out of food that is just as good as your first preference. (sighs) I thought this list was kind of daunting. (laughs) And um, I think if we, you know, placed this list in front of people even today, it'd be like, no way. (laughs) There's no way we can do all that stuff. Then I came across another article that had a simpler, more straightforward explanation of what this national nutrition program was going to do for the people. It said, the purpose of the campaign is fourfold, to help in the national effort to popularize good nutrition to give the homemaker simple, practical information when she is thinking about food, to concentrate attention on worthwhile foods of which there is an abundant supply, and to supplement the regular, continuous educational services of the country's mass merchandisers with an organized special effort to help build a stronger nation. In carrying out this program, all practical avenues of promotion are being employed. Basic foods are stressed in newspaper advertising, in leaflets, and in handbills, Attractive, informative posters stressing both seasonal and non-seasonal foods are displayed in stores. All food stores are participating in one way or another in the National Nutrition Program. Independent food outlets are helping advance it. So I really like that they break this just down into four simple ideas. The campaign for this National Nutrition is to help popularize good nutrition. (laughs) That's key. To give the homemaker simple practical information when she's thinking about food, to concentrate attention on worthwhile foods of which there is an abundant supply, so the stuff that's available, and to supplement regular continuous education services. So that means to give merchandisers information, pamphlets, or posters so that they could display it for their customers and just make it that more easy for the customers to see what they should be buying. I also really like that they talk about the avenues that they're taking to advertise this national nutrition program. So leaflets, handbills, posters displayed in stores. And of course, that brings us to propaganda. I'd have to say that the people who were at the forefront of this program were the grocers. And you could say that they were, the grocers were enlisted at the forefront of this campaign. Um, They were called home front quartermasters or merchants of health. And they were marketing not only towards victory gardens, canning, and ration point-free foods, but they also had to add the National Nutrition Program to their ads lineup. 
In a June 1942 newspaper article, Kellogg's had an ad in the Boston Globe entitled Merchant of Health. It shows a smiling, bow-tie-sporting, friendly grocer with a bag full of groceries and a, a Kellogg's cereal box poking out of the top, of course. It says, Your friend the grocer is the most important figure in the government's national nutrition program. For just as the druggist serves the needs of the sick, so your grocer serves the well. On his shelves are foods that every mother must rely upon to keep her family in health, and particularly to build strong, sturdy children. And he has much knowledge and advice that you can use. So ask your grocer about the kinds of foods specifically recommended in the National Nutrition Program. Get him to help you plan your meals. He will probably show you the official U.S. nutritional chart that has been released by the Office of Defense Health and Welfare Services. This chart is reproduced here. And it shows a picture of it in the newspaper. The government has urged that food dealers display it and that homemakers cut it out and pin it to their kitchen walls. But even more, it urges that you give your family, and particularly your children, these important strength-building foods, some from every group in the chart every day. For these are the foods that build a strong nation, and America needs Americans strong. Um, I really love that ad. It's full of all sorts of good things. Um, I, I really think it's funny that they suggest that the grocer will help the housewife plan their meals. I somehow just can't picture that. Um, just walking right in and saying, I need help planning my meals. And he'll just sit down with you and help you plan it out. Um, and I think we have to keep in mind, too, that a lot of these were I- idealistic ads it's not to say that this is actually what happened and we have to be really careful about that that a lot of this propaganda uh, it's hard to judge completely based solely on propaganda we really can't do that um because while the government has good intentions or maybe they don't but (laughs) but in this case i think there definitely was good intentions to up the nutrition of the country that it doesn't mean that's what happened but we can say we can definitely say that they made a concerted effort. So it wasn't just grocers that was enlisted in this campaign, but also individual companies had to get get in there too. Uh, just in a small search of newspapers, I found a lot of companies sporting nutritional encouragement and information. There was Nucoa Oleo Margarine, Junket Rennet Powder. Richmond Gas Corporation, A&P Grocers, Local Wisconsin, Cobb's Bakery, Hex Bread Company, Myers Bakery in Pennsylvania, New Era Cash Grocery in Louisiana, Centennial Flour Company, Betty Crocker, Borden's Dairy Company with Elsie the Cow, laughing at her disgruntled husband. Oh, stop grumbling, Elmer. I'm just balancing your diet. Um, <laughs> that was my favorite ad, I have to say, but, um, lots and lots. And I think if I could go searching for days and find so many ads talking about this nutritional program. And of course you see the chart that they're talking about in a lot of these newspapers. Before we get to the chart itself, um, I wanted to talk about how they were educating the public about this nutrition program. In the late fall of 1942, there were some communities who declared a nutrition week to educate the public about the program and get them on board. This was necessary, I'm sure. Um, Changing the eating habits of an entire nation took determination with constant information and encouragement. And I love to see that communities were trying to take this upon themselves to help their local people. And I'm sure if I searched even more, there'd be a lot more examples of communities, you know, teaching about the program. There were also lots of food demonstrations. If you think about, you know, they there were radio shows talking about cooking, but people needed to physically see, like, how do you prepare healthy food? Um, if you grew up with a very, not very wide diet that included fresh fruits and vegetables, you would even you wouldn't even know where to start. And so these food demonstrations were really important in teaching people this is how you properly prepare vegetables without losing vitamins. And um, you know, people needed to know how to do that. There were also articles in newspapers 
calling this program the quote unquote national nutrition yardstick or the quote unquote national nutrition gold standard. And there were a lot of articles teaching about the different vitamins, how they helped the body, which foods had the vitamins you needed, how to prepare them, and of course, recipes, lots and lots of recipes, because everyone loves recipes. (laughs) And last but not least, there were the basic seven food wheel posters with the slogan, U.S. needs us strong. Now, I, I actually came across a lot more of these posters than I thought I would. One is, and I'll actually have pictures of these on my blog so that you can take a look at them. It's definitely worth the look. One of them is one of my favorites. It, it features the food wheel that has the seven food groups. And the title is, For Health, Eat Some Food From Each Group Every Day. In addition to the basic seven, eat any other foods you want. (laughs) I love that. Really? That's giving me permission to eat whatever I want. There's another one that I think was the earlier version of the food groups. It says, U.S. needs us strong. Eat nutritional food. It shows Uncle Sam about to eat a forkful of something. And then a little family, father, mother, and little boy, I think. And then it's got, eat nutritional food, every day eat this way, do your part in the National Nutrition Program, and then it features the eight food groups on this one. In these this earlier version, they had eggs, and this was before rationing, and so they were worried about how rationing would affect the this new food groupage, and so they actually ended up putting eggs in with the meat and poultry and fish so that it became seven groups. Another poster is entitled Eat the Right Food. America Needs You Strong. Do your part in the National Nutrition Program. Work with your local nutrition committee. So that's actually tells us a little bit of something I didn't know before was that there were local nutrition committees. And then here's one that is a really great one. Food is a weapon. Don't waste it. Buy wisely. Cook carefully. Eat it all. Follow the National Wartime Nutrition Program. And it shows a plate with just bones left over and the fork and knife. And that means whoever ate this plate ate everything. Yes, a lot of great posters. And I do hope you go take a look on my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. All right, so now we're going to get into my favorite part of the nutrition aspect of the war. And that is the seven food groups. In a lot of places, you'll see the slogan, eat the basic seven every day. And this is what they're talking about is this food wheel. This is predates the pyramid and my plate, (laughs) all of those things. I grew up with the food pyramid. And but it's really cool to see that this is where we got our start with the national nutrition, focusing on getting the public healthier. And it was, you know, really Wartime was at the heart of why they started this. Now, the food groups are arranged in a really interesting way. And I think this is one of the best ways I've seen like a nutrition food plan organized. They organize it according to color, at least when it comes to the fruits and vegetables. So group one is green and yellow vegetables, some raw, some cooked, frozen or canned. Group two is oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit, or raw cabbage, or select greens. Group three, potatoes and other vegetables and fruits. So raw, dried, cooked, canned, or fresh. Group four is milk and milk products, fluid, evaporated, dried milk, or cheese. Group five is meat, poultry, fish, or eggs, or dried beans, peas, nuts, or peanut butter. Group six is bread, flour, and cereals, so natural whole grain or enriched or restored. Group seven, and this is my favorite, is butter and fortified margarine with added vitamin A. So someone in on my Instagram account made a comment of uh, this group seven is validation for the Southern America's mentality of butter is its own food group. Well, it's true. <laughs> Butter is in its own food group. 
Um, well, I guess I misspoke when I said it's organized by color. I mean, on the food wheel, they do have kind of their own color theme. Like green and yellow vegetables is green. Oranges and tomatoes and grapefruit is orange. Potatoes, other fruits and vegetables is blue. So in that sense, yes. But what they were really accomplishing with this food wheel is that each group had a specific set of unique nutritional aspects to them. And that's why they're grouped together in that way. So by including each of these food groups in your meals in the day, you were getting all of the nutrition that you needed. Why else was it arranged this way? Like, why did they need to have this food wheel? My ration cookbooks really pulled their weight for this episode because in so many of them, they have a section about nutrition. I mean, you can't avoid it. If you want to read from the beginning, there's always a section about nutrition because it goes hand in hand with planning your meals, which our next episode will be about meal planning specifically, but it was really fun to read through the different cookbooks and see their different takes on nutrition. So food has three big jobs to do. Job number one is to provide heat and energy so that you can breathe and walk, work and play. Job number two is to build and repair tissues, helping children grow big and strong and replacing wear and tear on the bodies of adults. Job number three is to protect, to regulate body processes, to keep our bodies running smoothly, to help our food digest properly, to make sure we get the most good from the air we breathe and that our hearts pump blood to every section of our bodies to help our tissues and organs function properly. So that is a very clear cut way of what food does for us. Now from um, one of my cookbooks called Food for Health and Victory, Balanced Meatless Menus and Recipes. And this was compiled by the Seventh-day Adventist Church as part of their war effort they have a list of five essentials of an adequate diet. In the intro, it says, a correct understanding and application of the principles of nutrition may yet demonstrate that food rationing is a blessing in disguise. Ooh, I'm sure a lot of people didn't quite see it that way, but it really is a good way to look at it. So the five essentials of an adequate diet. Number one is fuel to supply heat and energy. Number two, Protein to build and repair body tissue. Number three, minerals to help build strong bones, teeth, and red blood cells to regulate body processes. Number four, vitamins to promote growth, vigor, vitality, and general well-being. Number five, water to help digest and absorb food and to carry away waste products. Now, I really liked this list. It's a little similar to the you know, the three principles, the food has three big jobs to do, but I really like that they list water. Not all of the nutrition sections in these cookbooks talk about water. Uh, They do talk about fluids sometimes, like making sure you're getting enough fluids in the day, but I really like that they talk specifically about drinking water. And they have a quote in there. It says, as Victor Heiser said, Today, we know enough about the importance of nutrition to be able to say that the number of planes, guns, tanks that come out of the nation's plants is determined largely by what the nation's workers put into their stomachs. That's pretty compelling, don't you think? (laughs) So they break down these different sections. So fuel. These are the go foods. Fuel is necessary to make engines run. Food is fuel, which makes our bodies go. Too much fuel will go into layers of fat. Too little will result in loss of weight. The person who does strenuous work needs more fuel foods than does one who is engaged in sedentary work. A loss or gain in weight will usually tell whether one is getting enough or too little. Foods high in fuel value are fats, sugars, syrups, cereals, breads, desserts, potatoes, and other starchy vegetables. Proteins. These are the building foods. Protein is necessary for growth from infancy to adulthood. Protein is necessary for maintenance and repair of tissue after growth has ceased. The amount of protein one needs depends upon the person's normal weight rather than upon his activity. Good protein sources are milk, cheese, eggs, peas, beans, lentils, garbanzos, nuts, and cereals. So notice that they did not say meats. And I'll be getting to the reason why in just a minute. 
Next is minerals. These are the regulators and builders. Minerals are absolutely necessary for good health. The amounts needed are small, but the results from a deficiency are serious. The American diet is most likely to be lacking in the four minerals listed below. Be sure your food supplies these in ample amounts. And they list calcium, phosphorus, iron, and iodine. Next is vitamins for keeping fit and strong. Vitamins are indispensable to life, necessary for growth, help in more efficient utilization of food, protect against disease, improve the appetite, keep the skin smooth and soft, and help keep nervous stability. Vitamins are abundantly supplied in natural foods. Refined or processed foods contain little or not enough vitamins. Eating a well-balanced diet, including a variety of foods, will give us the vitamins we need. And they list the vitamins as vitamin A, B, C, and D. And last, water, the body cleanser. Life cannot exist long without water. Take from six to eight glasses of fluids every day. Some may be taken in milk, soup, fruit, and vegetable juices, but four to six glasses of water should be taken. So back to the part where they don't mention meat in the proteins. And this is because, I, I'm not sure if it's the same now, but when this book was published in World War II, the Seventh-day Adventist Church did not advocate eating meat. So this cookbook is all vegetarian. And so it's really cool to see that, yes, vegetarianism was a thing in World War II, either for religious beliefs or as a preferred diet. This is what they have to say about it. Because meat is a good source of protein and iron, many persons think that it is indispensable in a well-balanced diet. Since meat is easily digested, is a good source of the B vitamins, and has a pleasing flavor, it has become the pivot around which the American housewife has long planned her meals. The present emergency compels her to change the custom, but this should not cause her too great concern. All the nutritional elements which are found in flesh foods, the protein, the iron, and the B vitamins can be supplied from milk, egg, legumes, nuts, whole cereals, fruits, and vegetables. More careful planning and more skillful combining of foods and flavors are required to make the diet satisfying and appetizing without meat. But there are advantages which exceed in value the extra time and thought it requires. So you can be a vegetarian and eat an American wartime ration diet. I just, I find this so fascinating because yeah, in all the cookbooks, they focus on meats as the protein and legumes and, and fish, you know, like other things, but man, those organ meats, they just really drive those home that we should be eating those. It's kind of refreshing to see that there was another thought process behind this. There was another way of thinking that you can get the nutrition you need, but you don't necessarily have to eat meat, especially because it's so much more scarce. Now, in another one of my ration cookbooks called Ration Cookbook by Demetria M. Taylor from 1943, this might sound familiar because I talked about it in the last episode, they have a section about nutrition, of course. But in this case, they're talking about vitamins. It says, if you are jittery, if you suffer from the blues for no good reason, if you complain of little aches and pains, if you feel tired all the time, if you catch lots of colds, and if your doctor says there's no organic reason for any of these troubles, then it may well be that you are not getting enough vitamins for vital good health. A slight change in food habits may be all you need to set you on top of the world again. Then it mentions how sometimes vitamin pills or capsules are necessary under certain circumstances and for various reasons. It says, it's the height of nonsense to think that we can eat as foolishly as we please and make up for it by swallowing capsules. That way we don't get our calories, our bodybuilding proteins, and our roughage for normal elimination. But don't go to the other extreme and scoff at vitamin pills. They are often a godsend, and when the world is free again, they will provide the finest and quickest first aid to starving humanity in the occupied countries. This paragraph has a lot of cool stuff in it. <laughs> and I have to say, I am totally ashamed to admit that I sometimes think this way. But I think I can get away with, you know, not eating that great because, hey, I just take my vitamins every day. <laughs> but, you know, they point out something really important that, sure, you can take vitamins uh, to supplement your poor diet, but you're not going to be getting your bodybuilding proteins from that. You're not going to be getting roughage 
so that you have good digestion and elimination. And you're not going to get the calories that you need to exist for the day. So, <laughs> uh, I just, it's the height of nonsense to think that we can eat as foolishly as we please. I love that. Oh man, I guess that should be my, um, that should be my motto. Um, <laughs> so I remember to eat healthy. The other good thing about this paragraph is they point out that vitamins are actually going to serve a huge important purpose that when the war is over, it is going to be a first aid, a type of first aid for the starving people in Europe. That's something I never thought about before that, you know, they would use vitamins as a way to kind of really boost these poor people who've had hardly anything to eat. Another section in the ration cookbook that I really loved is what they call V foods. And this was a new idea. It says the Italians have their antipasto. The French have their hors d'oeuvres. The Swedes have their smorgasbord. Americans have adopted these foods and made them a part of the international cuisine of this country. Now's the time to originate a national food custom of our own with an American name. How about V foods? V for vitamins, vitality, vigor, vim, and victory. We never forget to put salt, pepper, sugar, and condiments on our tables. From this moment on, let's make it a habit to put one or more V foods on the table at every meal. <laughs> Gotta love the alliteration. Um, but they really make a good point. You know, let's create new food tradition in America where we never forget to put some V foods on the table. So what are these V foods? These are foods selected from the lists of food stars, what they say. These are foods that appear four or more times in the different vitamin groups. So A, B1, B2, C, calcium, iron, and proteins. So the four star foods, these are foods that appear four times in this list of vitamin groups, milk, cheese, eggs, liver, and kidney, greens, tomatoes, citrus fruit, like oranges and grapefruit, lean meat, and shellfish. The three star foods, these appear three times, peanuts and peanut butter, soya beans, fish, poultry, dried peas and beans, green vegetables, potatoes, white and sweet, whole grain or enriched cereals and breads. And last are two star foods. These appear two times. Yellow vegetables, yellow fruits, fruits raw and cooked, vegetables raw and cooked, butter and vitaminized margarine, and molasses. There are no one star foods, by the way. <laughs> the cookbook says, buy these foods as often as you possibly can. Build your market order around them. Your meals will be packed with health. They also emphasize drinking six to eight glasses of fluids a day, but especially water. And this is what they say water does for the body. It bathes the cells. Cells cannot work if they are dry. It keeps lung surfaces moist. It helps flush away waste materials through the lungs, skin, kidneys, and intestines. It helps maintain normal body temperature. It is necessary for good digestion and elimination. It carries food via the blood to all body tissues. When not enough fluid is taken, the results are headaches, constipation, nervousness, indigestion, loss of appetite. Drink those six to eight glasses of fluid a day. So I, this is another one of those cookbooks that talks about water that I really, I really like what they have to say. Now, I do have to say that, you know, I'm not a nutritionist. I know that the science of nutrition has definitely changed and while following uh, wartime nutrition would be nowhere near as maybe detrimental as like using canning recipes, like I talked about last episode, um, if you choose to follow <laughs> nutrition advice from the 1940s, definitely consult your doctor first, just, you know, just to make sure um, that you're getting everything that you need. But I think, you know, following these recipes, I think definitely can't hurt. I mean, they're advocating eating fresh fruits and vegetables. That's still hasn't changed. That science is pretty much the same. Still eat your fruits and vegetables. But there are a few don'ts from 
wartime that maybe we don't necessarily practice today. And I will have a list of these do's and don'ts for preparing vegetables in 1943 on my blog. So be sure to check that out um, because some of them are really interesting. But one thing I did want to mention is I found in this Texas newspaper this picture of a woman draining cooked vegetables into her sink. And the title is, Sink is the Best Fed Member of the Family. In throwing vegetable water down the sink, housewives throw away valuable minerals and vitamins. The juices from cooked vegetables should be saved for use in soups, vegetable cocktails, or to flavor sauces for meat dishes. And this is something that you see a lot, is that we should not throw out the cooking water for fruits or vegetables. There's a lot of minerals and vitamins still left in that water, and we should be using that and not feeding the sink as the best fed member of the family. So if you would like to practice a little wartime skill, save that vitamin water from the vegetables and put it to some good use in your cooking. Today's cookbook feature is The Wartime Cookbook by Alice Bradley. The subtitle is A Practical Guide to Wartime Cooking, Conforming to the National Nutrition Program, Prepared by a Nationally Known Authority on Cooking. Now, I, I actually have another of Alice Bradley's cookbooks, and it's a really thick cookbook. And in this smaller book, um, it actually makes mention that if you want to see more recipes to go consult the larger cookbook. <laughs> Um, but this one is specifically a wartime cookbook, as you can tell by the title. The interesting thing about this cookbook is that it is organized according to the different food groups. So it says group one, green and yellow vegetables. Group two, the oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit. Group three, other fruits, dried fruits, potatoes. Group four, milk and cheese. Group five, meats, fish, eggs, dried beans and peas and nuts. Group six, bread and flour cereals. And then it doesn't list these as separate groups, but fats, sugar and sweets, and then beverages. They're just separate little chapters. Um, but I think it's just interesting that the, she doesn't have them organized as, especially the fats. They are not, it doesn't say group seven fats. <laughs> so that's what I found really fascinating is that if you want to find, let's say, I need to make something in group one because we haven't had a lot of that today in our diet. You can go to this group one section and pick out a recipe that would fulfill that part of your nutritional diet. Conveniently, it also has a picture of the, the food wheel. And then it has a separate section called good eating in wartime. So in the section, it says... To get the most help from this book, read it through once from beginning to end. <laughs> um, so good eating in wartime. There are many books, magazine articles, posters, advertising booklets, and illustrations that tell us what to eat to keep well and strong. Now, since there is less food from which to choose, it is more than ever necessary to select intelligently the foods we need every day. And then it goes into an explanation of what to eat and why, explaining the different vitamins. It has a food groups chart, uh, necessary foods, and their chief constituents. X means an excellent source, and G means a good source. And it's talking about, so on the left, it's got the food group number, and then a column for the different foods. And then it has calories, protein, minerals and vitamins and each have their own little column and then it you know marks with an x or g if it's excellent or a good source for that particular thing so that's really helpful and then it has a little section about planning meals now i picked a few recipes from this book um normally i just try to pick two but one of them was uh I wouldn't say it was a fail, but it was a fail for our taste buds. <laughs> uh, no one in my family has touched it. And um, I think 
unfortunately, it might be destined for the chickens. So <laughs> I will talk about that in a minute. But first, I tried a recipe from group one, which is the green and yellow vegetables. And this recipe is for pumpkin pie because we are soon to be coming upon Thanksgiving. And I, I like trying different pumpkin pie recipes. There's, of course, zillions out there <laughs> to try. But I like trying the wartime ones because I think they're kind of in a class by themselves. They're very different from modern day pumpkin pies because pumpkin spice was not a thing in the 1940s. So this particular pumpkin pie is spiced with just ginger and cinnamon. So in order to make this pie, you steam pumpkin and then you drain and force it through a strainer. And this is a really important step because you do not want the stringiness of the pulp. And then to this uh, pumpkin, you add sugar, dark corn syrup, some butter or margarine, two egg yolks, some molasses, and then the ginger. This is two teaspoons of ginger and one teaspoon cinnamon. And this really comes into play later. Half teaspoon salt and then some scalded milk. I used almond milk again because uh, just in case my toddler wants to eat it, then he can because he can't have the dairy. And then what makes this very unique and very 1940s is that you beat the egg whites until they're stiff and then you fold that into the mixture, the pumpkin mixture. Um, I also didn't have dark corn syrup, so I used golden syrup. That was the closest thing I had. Um, and that worked out pretty well because it's not, you don't want something super sweet because dark corn syrup or just isn't as sweet as sugar. Golden syrup is sugar product, but um, I don't feel like it's as sweet as some other things I could have used like um, maple syrup. Uh, this texture of this pie is very interesting um, because of those whipped egg whites. And it's very hard to <laughs> fold egg whites into like a liquid mixture, <laughs> but somehow I managed it. And then you put the the mixture into a pie dish that's lined with a plain pastry. And then you, it says to bake it at 500 degrees Fahrenheit. I have never <laughs> baked a pie at that high of a temperature. And unfortunately, it doesn't tell you how long. So I just did it for seven minutes. I baked it for seven minutes at 500 degrees. And then it has you reduce the temperature to 325 Fahrenheit. And so, and it doesn't even tell you how long to bake it. it. Just says bake until a knife comes out clean. Served with whipped cream sweetened with honey. So I uh, baked it, I think for about 50 minutes. And even then it still seemed slightly more jiggly in the center than I would have liked. But I thought, well, maybe it, you know, sets a little bit more when you take it out. So I took it out and it, it did not solidify until after like fully. It didn't solidify fully until I, you know, let it sit overnight in the fridge. But it was still, I mean, it still pretty much held its shape, but um, not as much as you'd think with like a regular pumpkin pie modern recipe. Yeah, but the ginger is really strong in this and and the cinnamon, you can taste that too, but the ginger is definitely the star in this recipe. I think the egg whites add a very strange texture. They kind of still float at the top. And so the top is not that smooth, shiny surface you think of with, you know, modern pumpkin pies. It was just kind of like fluffy and airy. And then uh, the center of the pie is, you know, the more custardy type texture. But it was still very tasty. And the crust that I used was from uh, Westinghouse Health for Victory cookbook that's kind of my go-to for for pie and biscuits but anyway yeah I think this was a really good recipe it is a, a little bit strange with the the beaten egg whites but I think it's definitely worth a try if you haven't tried this type of pie before the next recipe I tried was the one that I felt was a little bit of a failure and this comes from group five which is the meats beans nuts food group it's a very hefty section in this book. There are a lot of these recipes. So I tried peanut roast. And the name actually is what really 
got my attention. It sounded really funny to me <laughs> because below is a recipe for peanut sausages. <laughs> so um, I thought, oh, these could be fun. So what this is, is you're making kind of a mock loaf, like a mock meatloaf, but it does not taste anything like a meatloaf. So don't, if you're going to try this, don't go into it thinking, oh, it'll taste like a pretend meatloaf. No, it doesn't. Because you mix uh, a cup of cream cheese or cottage cheese with a cup of finely chopped peanuts. And this part is really important. I chopped my peanuts using like a vintage nut chopper, but I think it needed to be chopped even finer uh, because the larger, like me even medium size chunks is not good in this recipe. <laughs> um, then you have a cup of dry breadcrumbs, a little bit of onion chopped, a cup of milk, and then you season it with chili sauce or ketchup is what it says, ketchup. I use chili sauce because I make wartime recipes and a lot of them you call for chili sauce. I just happen to have it on hand. Then it calls for salt and pepper and then you just mix it together and using dry breadcrumbs is really important so it soaks up that moisture and it thickens and gets more solid because it is pretty, the cup of milk was pretty startling. I thought this is never going to shape into a loaf, but it did. It did solidify and I shaped it in a loaf in a bread pan and then you're supposed to turn it out onto like a pan like a cookie sheet pan and then bake it for about 35 minutes I did it at 375 it says 350 to 400 degrees then you're supposed to serve it with a white sauce seasoned with chili sauce or tomato or creole sauce <sighs> I didn't actually make the white sauce for this so maybe that would have helped but guys this pretty much tasted like a cheese ball like you have at a party with crackers at Christmas time, <laughs> but not quite so glamorous. I, it was just, I don't know. I'm sure there's lots of ways to improve this recipe or to change it all together, <laughs> but, and it wasn't that it tasted bad. It just maybe was the texture with the flavor going on at the same time. It just didn't do anything for me and no one in my family is going to eat this thing. <laughs> so I don't know. I think, you know, it could serve as a good sandwich filling. So before I give it to the chickens, I think I might try that uh, just to see if it can <laughs> redeem itself in some shape or form. All right. And then the last recipe that I tried was a candy recipe. This is from the section for sugar and sweets. Sugar and sweets <laughs> is not its own food group. But I like that they put this in here anyway, because sometimes you just need to have a really a nice sweet dessert in more time, you know, for that good old morale. Um, I made a recipe for honey apple candy. This is a gelatin based candy, which I've never made before. And I am by no means a candy maker. <laughs> Half the time, my candy recipes fail, no matter if it's modern or vintage. Um, <laughs> so... This is a very interesting recipe. It, you soak a tablespoon of gelatin in some cold water. And then in a saucepan, you put one and a half cups of unsweetened applesauce. And that's really important. Don't use sweetened applesauce for this. Because you add a cup of honey to that. And then it says cook until very thick, stirring constantly. The thing with this cookbook, it doesn't like giving times. And that's, that's a problem with candy making. I don't know what it means to cook something till it's very thick. What exactly is very thick? <laughs> Applesauce is kind of thick already. I don't know. But I tried to cook it a long time and I thought it looked thick. Um, yeah. Then you take it off of the heat and you add the soaked gelatin and then you stir until the gelatin is dissolved. Then you add in a couple tablespoons of orange juice and some chopped nut meats. I use pecans, which I think actually goes well with this particular recipe. And then you pour it into an 8-inch square pan and you let it stand for 24 hours or until firm. I was very suspicious about this recipe. I thought there is no way this is going to solidify because, you know, a few hours after I made it, it was still like definitely liquidy. And um, I mean, in a thick way because <laughs> I did boil it for a while. Yeah, but it did actually. It did solidify uh, as much as it can. <laughs> So I, I was able to cut out a piece 
and hold it in my hands. It was very wobbly. <laughs> it actually kind of reminded me of Turkish Delight a little bit, but definitely on a different level. <laughs> Turkish Delight, I think, is definitely more solid of a gelatin, but this was softer, maybe because of the applesauce or maybe because I don't know what I'm doing and I didn't cook it long enough. <laughs> but then the interesting thing is I think that this actually helps it along. You roll it in soy nuts, fine coconut, or powdered sugar. I'll need to try it in powdered sugar. I actually haven't tried that yet, but I did roll it in coconut because I thought that sounded like a nice texture, chewy texture to go along with the very smushy gelatin. And it it's not too bad. Like you take a bite and you immediately get hit with honey. And that's maybe my bad because I used a wildflower honey and the, that's a pretty strong flavor. I uh, I think maybe clover would be better. But then you start to taste the applesauce and then you get the chew of the nuts and the buttery kind of coconut flavor. So it actually has a really nice aftertaste. The initial bite is very startling, <laughs> but then but then yeah, the aftertaste is really nice. So I don't know. It's it's a very interesting candy. I don't know if I'll make it again, but it was a very interesting adventure. These recipes will be on my blog uh, where you can try them if you dare. Today's story highlight comes from Adrienne Robertson about her grandmother, Jean Hall. She says, My grandmother, mother, and grandfather moved to Cambridge, England after the war in 1949 for my grandfather to attend divinity school. My grandmother was still a young housewife in her 20s, and my mother was a toddler. Rationing in America was memory, and my grandmother was grateful for a new adventure. Coming from North Georgia, she had no idea that coal was rationed or how much was appropriate. She burned through her first fortnight worth in two days and had no idea that she'd done it. An older neighbor lady quickly took my grandmother under her wing. American rationing had simply not prepared her for the type of rationing that was happening in the UK. I think this is a really great story and yeah, a great illustration of culture shock. Um, a lot of times I've tried to compare American and British rationing and you just can't fairly do it. Um, the national situations were so different. The food supplies were so different. And the needs of the people were just so different. So, um, but I can imagine what a huge shock it was to go from, you know, America where rationing had already ended and going to the UK where it was still continuing on. Definitely had that new adventure that she was seeking. So um, thanks so much for sharing this story, Adrian. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you or your family have American Homefront stories, I would love to be able to share them on my podcast. To share your story, go to victorykitchenpodcast.com and click on share a homefront story. You can follow me on Instagram. My handle is victorykitchenpodcast. And over there, I share lots of fun stuff, including behind the scenes, what I'm up to with research, and sometimes recipes. And I would love your support, which helps keep this podcast going. To do so, go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Crevison Lee and click on support. Don't forget to leave a review. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.